fun podcast for you today. We'll do our NBA playoff power rankings. Uh, some observations from last night. We'll carry over from the weekend as well. But we have Anthony Slater on the Warriors up 2-0 on the Denver Nuggets. And what is uh, a real expectation for a team that's looked terrific in the first two. But this is going to be fun too. Mac McClung, the rookie of the year in the G League. South Bay Laker, neighbor. Uh, his journey, high school dunking sensation on Instagram to somebody trying to find a way to make it in the NBA. Uh, that'll be a lot of fun and life advice at the end. It's the Ryan Rosillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA final starts now and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode of the Ryan Rosilla Podcast is brought to you by McDonald's. McDonald's French fries changed my life. They taught me to want. They taught me the taste of anticipation. There's no wrong way to eat a french fry from McDonald's unless you're eating my french fries. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. We have a new edition of the Playoff Power Rankings. Here's a little PSA. These are just power rankings that I use to make up to use as a vehicle to get into talking about different NBA topics and assorted other stuff. The rankings aren't actually real. So if you're upset that you feel like something is lower than it should be or higher than it should be, probably go outside a little bit more. Steph and the Warriors take the top spot. Uh, this is really impressive two games in. And we'll get to why Denver actually is just a brutal matchup um, for Denver, this Golden State team, better said that way. But as I said, we had this mysterious open where after the Warriors get it rolling, Draymond's coming back. Clay's looking a bit more like himself. I'm like, man, I might be, I might be all the way back in on this team, even though I'm a little worried about the front court depth, especially in a matchup against a guy like DeAndre Ayton. Now, there's still a lot of work that has to go on to even have that dream scenario in the Western Conference Finals. But what this new lineup of death is doing, and it's Jordan Poole, it's Wiggins, it's Green, it's Steph, and it's Clay, and it's Steph coming off the bench, which I really hope there's someone out there that will give us the television headline. Are the Warriors better with Steph off of the bench? Um, look, they're just everybody's better with Steph, but this is ridiculous. We're going to have Anthony Slater on a little bit later in the podcast from The Athletic. And there's a number, and it's very small. We're two games into this, but there's a number where this group and what they're doing offensively is like 200 points per 100 possessions, and they're allowing like 75. So it's absurd. It's, it's so absurd. It's kind of fake, but it's also real. It's real for two games. But my feeling was if all of these players were together and the plan was to just guard to death, not meaning defensively, but to basically throw four guards out there, even though Wiggins is kind of like a small forward, he's had moments where he's played, you know, in the backcourt. Um, have these these four dudes out there together with Draymond who couldn't be more fired up to defend Jokic the MVP and it's it's an awful matchup for Denver but it's a little reminder of what Golden State can look like 
when it's horrifying. I don't know if this number is right from last night because I was looking for it this morning and trying to figure out because it's so ridiculous. But in 19 game minutes, the Warriors scored 70 points. Is that possible? Is it possible that that was real? Or Because it, it was from somebody who like covers it from a stats thing. It wasn't like a joke. But that's what it is. I mean, it wasn't a great start for game two. You're like, all right, is Denver motivating? It's just Denver is not very good. All right, so that takes us to number two in the power rankings. Jokic, find the missing ballots topic. Uh, this isn't quite like a uh, presidential election debate here, uh, whether or not the election was stolen. <laughs> but the Jokic has two bad games. Denver's down 0-2. The reassessment of Jokic is the MVP. Like, this is the most predictable thing that we do in sports and we do it with the Heisman uh you know I don't I don't know like I've had I've had issues with arguments where I'll hear like somebody's good as an NFL player and then we think back like can you believe he didn't win the Heisman like wait so we're at week eight of his rookie year in the NFL and now we're supposed to feel bad about who won the Heisman in a completely different fucking sport the previous season uh this is not as extreme but this is kind of the point if you're an Embiid or a Giannis guy you're like oh this guy's the MVP I think that was kind of a point of one of the many points of why Jokic won the MVP or will win the MVP or again I voted for him because you're like this team just isn't that good um, but Jokic hasn't been very good. Uh, he's minus 45 through two and all the stats that I believe in with Jokic, the defensive stuff where he was second defensive win shares behind Tatum for the entire season. You're just like, OK, that's not really what's happening, because if you watch, too, and what Golden State's doing, there are big players where if they're near the rim, it gets you thinking about your drive. It just is. And maybe we don't do a good enough job quantifying what that stuff is. I remember the the old Sloan MIT paper about how block shots are overrated because they basically never led to possession because when you block a shot, you hit it out. I've also heard people argue like people should be better at blocking shots and then retaining possession. I don't I don't know that it's as easy as that. I know Bill Russell was really good at it, but I think anybody that's ever played, like when you're going up to try to time somebody to block the shot, if you were timing it to also retain possession, it would just be another element in your your mental timing that would kind of screw up your ability probably to block as many shots. But there's another larger point. It's kind of like rebounding. It's not so much how many rebounds you get. It's also how hard you make it to rebound around you. And there are just so many plays throughout an entire night. Well, you'll see this. You're like, okay, he didn't get the rebound, but the reason his team has the rebound or the reason this other guy's struggling or he's exhausted is because you're just tough to deal with rebounding wise. I think a lot of people understand this. And so when I look at some of the defensive stuff for Jokic, who is, yes, a better defender, and we're going to get to this with the Rudy Gobert stuff uh, shortly here as well, but you can see that there's no thought of, oh, no, Jokic is there, where I think when Embiid is around the paint, certainly Gobert in certain instances, um, you know, Bam is, is different because we'll get to that a little bit later when we talk Miami, but you can just see that Golden State's like, we don't care. We're ready to go. So, um, we're seeing a lot of predictable after the fact Jokic shouldn't be MVP stuff. Um, and it comes from the Embiid camp, but I don't know when this is going to go away. I, you know, maybe is it going to go on forever? It, it could maybe until next year's MVP. But I think what's really, really frustrating about some of the arguments that are crazy, um, is that if you look at Jokic and say, oh, well, you know, more made up numbers, non-ballers. Uh, I saw Hanlon again, Embiid's trainer, saying you shouldn't have a vote unless you can make a left-handed layup and shoot a free throw. I feel good about that contest for me, personally. But the funny part about the argument is when you say Jokic is really good and all these stupid numbers that don't mean anything, and again, I've just admitted I think the defensive stuff was completely overblown, the rest of the overall stats for Jokic that he's amazing at and led the categories in, 
You know who's like number two or three in almost all of them? Embiid or Giannis. So you can't simultaneously shit on Jokic for having awesome numbers in these supposedly stupid numbers while your candidate is right there with everybody else. Win shares, Jokic won, Embiid three. Um, offensive win shares, Jokic won, Embiid four. PER, Jokic won, Embiid three. VORP, who everybody makes fun of because it sounds stupid. Jokic won, Embiid three. Defensive win shares. Um, as I mentioned, Jokic was second, Embiid's fourth. Best plus minus through the entire season. Jokic won, Embiid three. That's box score plus minus, which relates also to total points added. Um, Jokic is first and beat is third. So whenever you're making fun of those numbers, you're actually discrediting your own candidate if you're on social media constantly talking about Embiid. But here's a very simple part of this. Look at what Golden State's doing from three right now. Uh, you've got Poole shooting 59% from three, Steph 50%, Clay 44%, Wiggins is at 60%. That's on 28 three-point attempts through two games. You're not going to beat anybody when the other team shoots like that. And Denver has a ton of problems other than a frustrated, ejected Jokic in game two. Let's get to the Rudy Gobert part of this, because coming in at number three, I always feel like this is complicated. I felt like I've been on the island for this for a little while now, and we knew what Dallas was going to do. We mentioned it in the preview, especially not having the Doncic part of this. But they've made the adjustment. They went full clipper small in game two. Maxi Kleber hit a million shots. There's also a turnover number in there that's incredibly alarming. Um, and Donovan Mitchell, who, yes, I really like, takes it upon himself. And then the whole doesn't pass to Gobert thing, those guys don't pass to him. Gobert completely fumbled a point-blank shot at the rim at 6.30 left in the fourth quarter. He never touched the basketball again. He had a post on the left block earlier in the game where he tried to do like a baseline pivot against a defender, it went off his foot. I think people were laughing about it. Um, and unfortunately for Rudy, you're tasked with covering the rim, protecting the rim, which is really covering for your perimeter defenders because Mitchell was terrible on defense last night. And they just don't have, I mean, Mike Conley got toasted by Jalen Brunson. Shout out to Brunson. Shout out to Kleber for what they did offensively coming back and winning this game. Uh, Mitchell has been inefficient. But I, I feel like Whenever you question the Gobert defensive impact thing, there's a lot, you know, this almost relates to the Jokic thing a little bit is that I like some of the numbers. I use a lot of the numbers. I'm not blind and married to all of them. You got to be a little malleable with this stuff. And I've never been more malleable about what some of the overall numbers are than I am with Rudy Gobert because I know what his on off thing is. I know what he means to this Utah defense, which definitely slipped this year. I think Rudy wasn't exactly to his standard. Um, but when I see somebody become a liability in playoff games this often, I don't understand why there's an argument against it. And that's what Dallas did. And it's a hard assignment to do both things. So it's not all on him. It's not all on Gobert and the Clippers thing. But it's also something that you're going to attack. And I don't know if I'm early on this. I don't know. There's some people who are just going to say I'm completely wrong. But I've, I've felt for years now there's never been a bigger separation between regular season and playoff basketball. And uh, Gobert may just straight up be a victim in all of this. I, I I take Bam defensively in a playoff series, even against a bigger player. I would take him over Gobert every single day of the week. That gets us to number four, spite rankings. Um, the Heat culture was terrific in game one. If there was a team that was going to be able to get through all the Jimmy Butler nonsense that we saw, 
Like, even if it was entertaining, even it's like, hey, we're, here we go with Jimmy Butler again, which is fair because this is a real thing. If there was one team where it just wasn't really going to matter that much, it's the Heat. Now, some would argue, I think Bill was going more with the playoff scheduling for Atlanta, having to play all those games. And then the Heat, I believe, what, one game in nine days. So tons of extra time. I also just think that the Heat are so locked in defensively and what they did with Trey, that Trey's got to figure out some counters here quickly. You got to get the ball moving. You got to move once you get rid of the basketball. I think some smart teams, and it's very simple. Hey, they're doubling our main guy, our main offensive guy who has the ball in his hands is bringing it up. Get it out of his hands immediately. Run him through a screen. Come back up and catch it again. Yes, it takes off time of the shot clock, and we got to be quicker in decisions now with like 12 left on the shot clock as opposed to initiating our offense at like 18. But it does seem to work because when you go through one thing, it seems like teams don't defend the second team or the second thing as well. I think Phoenix defends the second thing well, and the Heat certainly do, but that's going to be something they're going to have to do. But it's back to the BAM part because I love BAM. Uh, switching into BAM is not anything anybody ever wants to do. It's not like, hey, let's get a switch into BAM. But BAM was upset about not winning Defensive Player of the Year. Marcus Smart won it. Congrats to Smart. I'm, I was surprised that Smart won it with that many votes. I don't think he was the single best defensive player all season long. That's fine. I'm not going to get a huge fight about it. I think there were so many different options this season. But Bam saying the Heat didn't get it because of national TV exposure is ridiculous. There's some weird post not getting an award complaints that we've seen that are that are just strange overall. Um, like Jordan Poole not winning most improved player. I voted for him. It's okay that he didn't win it. I mean, people are acting like, like this is this, the, some of the results that come in and the we're like, wait, you guys care that much about most improved player? Like what's what's happening? So Bam was like, we're not on TV enough. It's the that. No, Bam, you missed 26 games, man. You missed 26 games. Smart played almost the entire season. So um, that's what happened there. Hell, I voted Jaron Jackson and I'm not even sure that I'm right about that either. Uh, higher in the higher in the playoff power rankings, middle fingers. The middle fingers do not bother me. I do think it's a little weird that you have an NBA, play, NBA player just flicking dudes off left and right throughout a playoff game. But I don't know that we got a ton of, of thought on this. Like, were people really outraged? I don't, I don't know that they were. Do you want to find outrage? We can always find outrage. We can find outrage on anything. But like real people that you respect, are they going on TV saying this is the worst thing ever? I don't know. I don't watch a ton of the sports um, topic shows because I have work to do. But I don't, I don't think that many people... Are that upset? And at this point, if you're still pro Kyrie, you're never changing your mind. And if you're anti Kyrie, you're never changing your mind. And I'm probably in that. But as I can, much as I can appreciate what he did, but I wonder if the heckling, which seemed like it was not working the entire time, if it actually worked on that last possession where Kyrie wanted that jumper so bad, um, which he has a tendency to do. But you know, so do the great players because they want that shot. They want to be able to prove it and walk off and have everything. But I, I think the middle finger part of it's weird in that it's like, oh, that is kind of. Like we don't see that a ton, and if David Sturm were commissioner, I think we would have a different news topic on that uh, to deal with. All right, last one here. Lower in the power rankings, perfect games in baseball. Uh, we didn't get to the Clayton Kershaw thing. I think it sucks that he gets yanked eighty pitches in. I mean, that's the whole point. It's like, well, what if he's going to have a hundred plus? Pitch? Well, that's the whole point. Is it's a perfect game. Nobody's getting on base, so his pitch count is lower. The stress of pitches is different. Eighty pitches in one game may be different from eighty pitches in a different game. But we have so many no hitters. Not so much perfect games. We had nine no hitters last year, twenty twenty one. So a lot like three point shooting and trying to compare to different eras. You're like, hey, it's a different sport. Some of the pitching numbers um, are are like this, where 
you go, okay, I can see what somebody's doing in this era historically and how it stacks up against other things. I just think it's completely different because guys don't care about striking out all the time. That's why we had nine no-hitters in 21, 13 total no-hitters in the 1980s. Hey, Hoops fans, don't just watch all the NBA playoff action. Be a part of it with FanDuel, an official partner of the NBA. Right now, all new customers get a risk-free bet up to $1,000. Just place any bet on the NBA playoffs. And if you don't win, you'll get up to 1000 bucks back in site credit. So it's almost like a do-over. So if you're on the fence about it, like, well, hey, I can get this wrong, and then I can just do it all over again. That's the point. The app is safe, and it's easy to use. Get your winnings fast. Tons of betting options. Um, I'm going to look at a couple games here for you. All right, so straight lines on the three games for tonight. Heat are favored by seven and a half. Grizzlies favored by seven. Phoenix favored by 10. I think I like the dogs just from the point totals. Those are high point totals um, for for game twos after getting to know each other a little bit here. I mean, Phoenix felt like they could have won that game by 30 and they let the Pelicans back into it until Chris Paul fourth quarter the hell out of you. Uh, but I think I'd like the points. The one that I would focus in here, the highest total, for any of the three games, uh, Minnesota to Memphis is at 240. I just wonder if that game's going to just be... They're not going to have as many free throws. I think we're almost 70 combined free throws, so that's going to mess with the total. I would think that's not going to happen again. And just a little bit more familiarity with what each going to do, especially after, look, they played four times in the regular season, so this isn't exactly new. But if I had to, under 240, second time facing each other. So there you go. Download FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook today using the promo code Ryan, R-Y-E-N, and place your risk-free first bet for a chance to take home a W on basketball's biggest stage. Remember to use the promo code Ryan, R-Y-E-N, for this amazing offer. Must be 21 and older and present in select states only. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires 14 days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-800-789-7777, or visit ccpg.org forward slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-GAMBLER, or visit forward slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, New Jersey, PA, Virginia, or 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help, Michigan, 1-877-8. Hope, New York, or text Hope, New York, 467-369, New York, Tennessee Redline, 1-800-889-9789, Tennessee, or visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net, West Virginia. From The Athletic, does a great job covering the Warriors, the 2-0 up on Denver Warriors. It's Anthony Slater. All right, this looked really good. I think a lot of us knew this was probably not a great matchup for Denver. Um, Denver's just not that good, and it's been even more horrifying. Uh, What have you seen the first two games? Yeah, I mean, it's, as you mentioned, particularly without Murray and, and Porter, they, they get, Jokic can be targeted in all the screen action they want, which tires them out on the offensive end. I think that's an important part of that strategy. And they just, they're guard defenders like Will Barton, Monty Morris, okay, I guess, defensively. Austin Rivers is supposed to be their like Curry ace off the bench. I mean, I wouldn't even have him in like the top 20 Curry defenders in the league. So they just can't do anything. But wh- how the Warriors have looked has, has mattered, not just that they're up 2 0 on Denver. What Draymond has done, you know, with the Jokic matchup has shown he should be able to go small ball center all playoffs, essentially. And then I'm sure you want to get to the Jordan Poole stuff. But if Jordan Poole is just going to be like a second Steph Curry on the floor, like <laughs> that seems difficult to defend. 
All right, I, I, we could go in a million. Let's just do the Jordan Poole part. I voted for him for most improved player. I did too. Yeah, I did too. Uh, and I remember hearing, because I had mentioned, like, I think he was eighth in overall plus minus last year. I'm going, okay, wait a minute. Some of that's connected to Steph. And then I think there was another Golden State Warriors media member. I don't forget who it was. And I, I don't mean to say that to be dismissive, but it was like, hey, it's not. You don't watch the games. They're different rotations. So then I went to Second Spectrum. I go, well, can you sort this for me? And they were like, yeah, there's still enough minutes there with Steph that it, like Jordan Poole's not eighth in plus minus in a normal situation over the course of an NBA season. But it was a sign, right? It was a sign of improvement and his confidence and a little bit more of like, oh, wait, is this guy showing me some things? But then to see this, where it doesn't look like anybody can guard him and he has like he has it all. He has the full package and you can't stand from it and he can shoot and he's as confident as anybody out there. Give me your Jordan Poole like timeline but then also like bill and i have started doing like what if he is this good like how different do you have to look at him and then the future of the warriors yeah i mean preseason i think i i think i was on zach lowe's podcast and i was like my he might be going towards cj mccollum range i'm like ducking i'm like that sounds terrible but But then but then i might have told you you were crazy so you know that's what i I mean I, i was saying like I felt like I was saying that to a national audience and they were going to be like, what is this guy talking CJ McCollum for this kid? Now, like that seems like a floor almost. Uh, but anyway, his timeline, it is uh, fascinating. Really. I mean, we're talking 28th overall pick comes into, uh, you know, a dynasty that has just died at least temporarily. Right. Clay's out for the year, basically vacation away from the team. Draymond's uninterested in the season. Steph breaks his hand five games into it. They're 15 and 50 that year. He is forced into the rotation and he was maybe the worst rotation player in the league. I mean, I I think the December of his rookie year, he was like one of 20 on two pointers and like, oh, of like 16 on threes. Like, I think he finished the season 28% overall, 30 something or 28% for three, 30 something percent overall. And then the pandemic hits and he's, he's basically an afterthought. They don't go to the bubble. Uh, you you are basically entering his second season, which happens way further away than you thought, uh, thinking like they just they whiffed at 28, which they had done. They whiffed on Jacob Evans at 28. It was, you know, that's not catastrophic. Uh, that's the but, whiff neighborhood, by the way. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and but you're talking to people behind the scenes, you know, Chris DeMarco is the coach that works with him closest and some of the other people that during the bubble, they were allowed to go one uh, basket, one coach, like one player. Coach got to wear a mask and like gloves, but he was watching pool was watching like the bubble playoffs and watching Tyler hero, the way Tyler hero moves off the ball and scores. They're very similar games. Uh, and he was like sending clips to DeMarco like, Hey, let's go in the gym tomorrow. Work on this, run me through some of the Tyler hero stuff. And you, I'm sure you've heard all the stories. Like he is one of those obsessive workers behind the scenes. And I know that gets overplayed in sports, but you know, people that work hard like Draymond green have worked themselves to this point are impressed with his work. So that's how he got better, got his body stronger. Year two, they signed Brad Wanamaker to play over him. Uh, and Steve Kerr did play Brad Wanamaker over him, which in retrospect looks like you know a, a rough decision, but it, it sends him to the G League bubble. He's basically the best player in the G League bubble. That convinces Kerr finally to put him in the starting lineup. But Steve has been on this hype of, you know, he's not a true point guard and he's always wanted to, you know, have a ball handler out there with him. That's why he wanted Wanamaker with him. And then he, Nico Mannion, actually, when he brought pull back from the bubble, he's like, well, we can't play him at back a point. It's got to be Nico Mannion out there with him. Finally, he has allowed Jordan Poole a little bit more rain. And you saw this season what, what he's done with it. 
So this guard lineup, which I had been told, like, okay, what do you think the plan will be with this team? You know, and it was just we're gonna throw all those dudes out there at the same time and just see if it can't be defended. And right now, Denver can't defend it. What's the number that you had this morning? Again, it's 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 real, but it's kind of fake, but it's also absurd. So they're plus 29 in 11 minutes. That's a 204 offensive rating and a 75 defensive rating. <laughs> I think it's like uh, 42 to 11 or something, you know, 42 Whatever, 13. Right, yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's broken open both games. Denver's been in both games and then second quarter, he finally goes to it. Uh, and it's just a little like four minute pocket games over. Uh, now the question becomes moving forward. Like got to start this lineup. Draymond, do you hear Draymond at the podium last night? Yeah. Somebody asked me, you know, Steph Curry, six man, but you know, best six man you've ever seen, like a joking question. He's like, look, Steph Curry's starting. But then he was like, I think Jordan Poole should be starting too. And then you're just like, all right, well then who's coming out to me? It's clearly going to end up being Looney. I think that that lineup starts against Memphis or Minnesota. Uh, and that is just who they ride with. I think going forward. And then you could, you could back up Draymond with Looney, but I think in the modern age with how Draymond's looking like he's just start at center. Um, <laughs> have you had moments then? Because I, I've joked and made fun of myself as I mentioned in the open. Because there was an open that we did, and then Steph got rolled up, and I taped it the night before, which I never do. And I called Kyle, my producer. I go, "Hey, just cut that open because now, you know, Curry got rolled up, and I don't know." I felt like prior to that game, that's how much I was looking forward to that Boston game. But I was like, I think I'm starting to feel things again. I'm worried about the front line depth, which maybe we'll touch on here a little bit. But even if it's Denver. But having these three guys back and then pool playing like this, and this is the best play is looked. Do you do you start to have like little moments of going, wait, do, do I have to think that this team can now get out of the West or is that just still crazy? Yeah, I mean, it's because of how Draymond looked and pools looked. And, and you know, you, we can mention Steph. He did have 34 points in 23 minutes off the bench last night. Um, but it's I'm and I'm writing about this tomorrow, but this Draymond Pool connection that has formed over the last month, I I, I don't think it should be kind of I guess understated or overstated, whatever. Um, early in the season, there was a moment. You know, Jordan Pool started at the two in in Clay Thompson's place, and they they played a few months together. Were really good. They went eighteen and two to start the season, but Pool was the kind of play, still playing his a little erratic game, always looking for his own, and he kept rejecting Draymond screens. Um, and there was. Uh, they were beating, I think it was the Wolves, and there was suddenly a blow up on the bench that that went viral. Like, whoa, Draymond Green's going after Jordan Poole. They're up like eleven, and they're ten and one right now. What's going on? And it was because Poole kept rejecting his screens in the half court and, and trying to take guys one on one. And and Draymond kept trying to impress on him, like, look, look at what I do with Steph. You can use the DHOs. You can use my screens. I can make the game much easier for you. And I, there was never that type of connection. And then Draymond belief is because Steph was out the last month, blessing in disguise, he said he could suddenly just start working on that stuff with Jordan Poole. And he said even himself, look, if Steph's not out there, I was just looking for someone. Because I think we all know like Draymond's kind of relying on that too, right? I mean, because if Steph or Jordan Poole's not out there, he kind of gets somewhat embarrassed offensively. They sag off him. He can't DHO a shooter because there's no shooter out there. So they did that the last month. And to me, that exploded Jordan Poole even more. I don't know how much like You've probably noticed it lately. He's basically doing the Steph stuff. Yeah, but it's a great point on Draymond, too, because if you're turning down Draymond's screens, then he's like, what am I doing out here? Like, yeah. wh- wh- right? Because, I mean, the whole point is either I get the ball off the double or, you know, 
look, the back cut stuff that we saw last night too is hilarious. I mean, we had the clay cut because two stay with Steph, but then you see some of the shit happens with pool now where you're like, this is all like, it, it's the best version of basketball. Cause it's like, Hey, if you just give a little bit more effort than what other teams do in the half court, your life is going to be so easy here. And once people figure that out, then this is that kind of an explosion. Yeah. I mean, and, it's funny because, you know, they've had Wiseman, they have Kaminga now. And sometimes there's the thought of like run high, pick and roll with those two guys. They're great dive men with Steph. And I know Kerr's point at times is like, so we're, we're putting Draymond in the corner. He's he's the stationary in the corner, like where they're obviously ignoring him. So they run a unique style. But what they didn't have last season when they had Wiseman out there, not knowing where to go and Kelly Oubre, who, you know, plays a, a unique style in itself that does not fit the Warriors. They have guys this season that just know how to run how they want to run. And you're seeing that all come together with even Iguodala. I know he didn't play yesterday, but he's been back lately too, which stabilizes the second unit. Uh, And I don't, I mean, it is a really, really good matchup for them, Denver, but how they've looked makes you wonder how far they can go. Yeah. And and I, I, it's, it's really the question here because I'm always going to give them the benefit of the doubt because of the Steph part of it. But now when Draymond looks like this and Clay looks like this, but then I'll keep coming back and being like, you kind of knew this was going to happen with Denver. And once you've seen the players, be like, all right, this team isn't really that good. And the defensive stuff with Jokic, although I think better, but exposed last year in the playoffs, but better in the regular season part of it, you can see when they're when they're getting the ball and they they kind of swing it to the other side, and then there's an angle on the drive, those guys couldn't be happier to have Jokic standing under the rim. Like, it's pretty funny how they was like, yeah, whatever. We don't care. We're going right at you every time. There's just nothing. There's no resistance there, right? I mean, have you seen some of that stuff? I don't know if it's even some, been touched on in some of the postgame stuff, but it's one thing to have spacing in a lane run. It's another thing to have spacing and no fear. No rim protection. Yeah. I mean, in Aaron Gordon, I mean, we don't need to get into an Aaron Gordon conversation, but he's is he their second best player? And if he is, he's had a horrible series. Um, on both ends, right? They're they're sagging off of him, and then, he, I mean, he just doesn't do much. Uh, but to me, I'm already maybe the I actually don't think it's unwise. I'm already looking at the other matchups, right? If it is Memphis, you know, Jaron Jackson, small ball center, and they're out there, and they got Dylan Brooks hounded some of these guys, and Desmond Bain, and um, you know, they that is a much stiffer challenge, and there's been moments early in these Denver games, right? They're up eight middle of the second quarter where they're pressing a little bit more up on them. And the worst, like throwing sloppy turnovers, like they get pretty turnover happy, but Denver's not turning them over. Whereas that's what Memphis does. That's why Memphis was successful against them this season. That matchup's a lot scarier. And that to me is why you start Jordan Poole right away. Because usually when the Warriors look their most congested offensively, it's when Kevon Looney and Draymond Green are on the floor together. I just don't think you can do those minutes against Memphis. And then beyond that, how good did Phoenix look defensively the other day? And just, you know, I, there's just so many more tougher challenges uh, defensively waiting for this offense. Yeah, no, that's that's a good way to put it. And I think you also have to include a possibility of Minnesota and then wondering, okay, well, how would that Towns matchup work out? Because even if you feel like this other team, like Aiton or Towns, um, and you're like, oh, well, they're just going to go into the post against the spot. Nobody does it. Nobody does it. They're not. You're not going to run 20 post isos for Jandra Ayton. You're not going to do it with Towns, especially when Towns proves to have a shooting season that he just had. So you could probably still survive with the lack of depth. But that's the part of it that I don't. I know there was always hope that Wiseman would come back. But even if Wiseman is going to be good and was going to be healthy, a guy who's barely played basketball for three years to say, oh, now by the way, 
you're part of our playoff run with high expectations, not just, hey, we're happy to be here as a seven or eight seed. Are you surprised they didn't find a way to maybe give a little depth up front or were they just sort of in a roster crunch where they liked so many of their other players? Well, it's it's kind of the faulty part of their developmental plan. Win now, develop now is kind of how it's been termed uh, around here. But like they did, they wanted a path cleared for James Wiseman. He was the second overall pick. Like you think Joe Lake had wanted, you know, Robin Lopez standing in James Wiseman's way to playing time. No. And the problem for them is it wasn't like December came along. He had the second knee surgery and it was like, okay, out for the season. It was always like two weeks away, two weeks away, two weeks away. And it's just the way it, I guess, materialized, allowed them always to think that this, you know, the mystical James Wiseman was looming two weeks away and it never let them add when they probably should have for, for, for this season purposes, they always should have. But they were trying to clear a path for James Wiseman. And it that is the one part of this plan that has really worked out against them because looks like they hit on Kaminga, looks like they hit on Moody. They developed the hell out of Jordan Poole. Everything kind of is working well for them, except for the Wiseman part. And either that's not going to matter because Draymond Green is just going to, you know, roam around all playoffs and 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 do what he's doing to Jokic to Towns or Jackson to eight and whatever, or Draymond's going to wear down. Looney's not going to be enough, and you're going to be sitting there when they're down three-one in the West Finals, going, "Man, they should have added, this, uh, you know, extra help at the big spot." What's the pool money um, approach here? Because Max, Max you think they'll I get think, in front of it? I think. Well, sorry, I was talking from the pool perspective, and the no, pool perspective I, I, I is get, I get that part. Yeah, the pool perspective is if a Max is not on the table now. He's a guy who has shown like he's going to get better. Like he just that's what he does. He gets better because he's in the gym like crazy. So if to me, if if Max isn't on the table, he should go see you in restricted free agency. Sacramento Kings right up the road. Maybe they'll max me or the magic with an offer sheet. So if that's not on the table, I just don't think it gets done this summer at this point with how he's looked in, on this stage. Uh, from a Warriors perspective, you know the tax crunch that they're in. But what's key, and I think it gets lost in this conversation about Poole's money. Yes, he's extension eligible this summer, but the, the money doesn't kick in until the season after. He's only making $3.9 million regardless next season if an extension is agreed upon. And Andrew Wiggins, who, what is he, at $33 million at this point, his contract is up after next season. So the moment Wiggins is up is when Poole's extension would kick in. You could essentially just replace those two contracts. And at this point, I mean, I think it's pretty clear organizationally, like Jordan Poole has hopped Andrew Wiggins in the future pecking order. So we'll see how they want to move money around. But that is the easy answer. You can just replace Wiggins money with Poole's money. There was always this kind of thought of of the the next guy. You know, I never quite understood the Beal thing because I feel like he's a ball stopper. And that's why I think when Paul George was available and I'd heard rumors about like whether or not Golden State would be interested and you're just like, yeah, but you have to buy into what they're doing. You can't be a ball stopper while now everybody's watching you. And even Durant, I think to his, you know, look, it was easy for Durant because Durant's incredible, but to his credit, I, I, I don't think he ball stopped the way he could somewhere else, like all the ISO that he can run in Brooklyn. Um, and feel free if you disagree with any of that, just jump in. But um Hey, would they throw Wiseman? Would they throw Kaminga? Would they throw Poole? You know, use the Wiggins money or any of that kind of stuff. Does it feel like, and we don't really know the answer to this because maybe the next mad guy wants to play there and it's a no-brainer, but does it feel like the packaging, all of the assets is being replaced by, we're just going to ride it out with the development of our own guys? Because it seems like Kaminga, the ceiling for him, 
you know, after it, after it works, it's like, well, maybe just you stay pat here and try to just schedule out the contracts and keep it together instead of throwing three for one, somebody else to fit in with our culture. Yeah. And the truth is like the, the decision makers up top. And I mean, you know, the names, Joe Lake of Bob Myers, but particularly obviously Lake of this has always been the plan. You know, the Bradley Beal noise is like veterans, like knowing guys in the league that they think can help them win this season. You know, it's why in training camp, I'm, I don't know how much you follow the noise, but like they preferred Avery Bradley front office preferred Gary Payton, the second, because like they just felt it was like a developmental piece that had a higher, you know, potential value for them. Not even just this season is beyond. They went Payton and, and the veterans were upset. They didn't do Bradley. Now, obviously that has tilted towards the front office. Like that, that was a good decision. I just, th- like Joe Lacob cares about 2025, 2026, 2027. He has publicly come out and, you know, even had quotes. I remember I did an interview after the draft about Kaminga and he was like, I, he even named the Lakers. He's like, I don't want to be the Lakers that, you know, chases down, tries to chase down one or two titles and squeak it out and mortgage the next six seasons. He's like, the Lakers went six seasons. I think he said without making the playoffs, if that's the correct number, he doesn't want to do that. Now, there are drawbacks to that. You're seeing it with what we just mentioned with Wiseman, their obsession with you know cl- having a clear path for Wiseman probably hurt what their depth could have been, particularly in the front court this season. But this is their plan. And I just don't think Lakeup is running off of it. I think it would be more likely that he turns away from the current era over the next couple of seasons than he leans in hard and is like, Kaminga's gone, Wiseman's gone, Pool at this point, not Pool uh, for... Pascal Siakam or, you know, Ben Simmons at the, at, you know, whoever, Na- like you said, name your star. I just think he, at this point, believes he's grooming like the next playoff version of his, of his core that includes a lessened version of Curry, Clay, and, and maybe Draymond. This is very obvious um, in that because the personality of Steph and Clay and even Durant when he was there, they're, they're kind of, maybe passive isn't the right word, but they're not super emotionally charged guys, which is why Draymond's energy is needed. I always feel like successful teams, you need something like that. But it's funny seeing Poole and the pass that he had to be Elisa last night and then Draymond's reaction on the bench and then Gary Payton the second, which I didn't love him, you know, doing that to Jokic. He I does understand. that all the time. Right. He, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Jokic being pissed about Gary Payton blocking a shot and then patting his ass and being like, don't touch me. Like, I, I totally understand Agreed. Especially, especially Agreed. when it's like, no offense to Gary Payton the second, but if you're at Jokic's level, you're like, what the fuck? You're just doing... But seeing that you've got these two younger dudes that have a little bit more Draymond in them than the other guys, it's almost like a new layer of, of swagger for this team that didn't usually have like a lot of guys like this. Just do their job and make shots and embarrass you. And now you've got guys that want to embarrass you and also tell you about it, which is why I think I've seen like different cutaways to Draymond where he's laughing his ass off because it's this is kind of like a new thing. Yeah, and I'd add Kaminga into that. I mean, he'll dunk on you uh, and he's he, he has a kind of a spectacular game that I'm not sure how much will be showcased in the playoffs. Like maybe he'll get cameos, but right now he's obviously out of the rotation. I agree. It is the personality is shifting a little bit. The funny thing is, I mean, like, you know, Poole and Draymond have, I mentioned the, the little blow up earlier on the bench. There's been clashes with them. I mean, even early in, in Poole's rookie season practices where he came in with that confidence level. And, you know, obviously it's a, there's a Michigan, Michigan state rivalry. They're always chirping about that rivalry in the locker room. Um, but Poole has proven to them that he can be trusted to win. And they've been crazy hard on him. Steve Kerr has been really hard on them. Um, 
Iguodala has has given him tough lessons. We've written about a few of them. There was a funny one in like the players union when when Poole was in a slump and he threw the ball off off the TV screen and like the players union practice facility and like cracked it a little bit. And Iguodala is one of the reps for the players union and just like he was in the gym. He walk, you know, he does like a theatrical walkover and look at it like you're gonna pay for that. I'm gonna have to tell the whole league like you know this is why. $450 is coming out of everybody's checks. And like, he's just, they're always keeping him in line. And it's, he's what they've liked about him. And you talked to, it's like, he has taken it. He's taken the bad coaching. He's taken the benching at times this season. There'll be four people will make a defensive mistake over a bad sequence during the regular season. But the last one was Jordan Poole missing a box out, let's say that. And it's like timeout, Steve Kerr. Everyone's getting up. Mike Brown is right in Jordan Poole's face. Iguodala is coming over. And I think there was, there's been at times a lot of Jordan Poole this season, like, really me again? Like, how about Draymond can't make a jumper? You know, something like that. But he has absorbed it well and has come out better for it. And now, to me, the relationship between Draymond and Poole is very strong. Were you in the building last night? Yeah. Okay. Did you, what the, was Denver mad at each other for two and a half hours? What was going on on the bench? Because the broadcast did not uh, really do a great job. On so, it. I mean, it was really like it wasn't a full game. Obviously, they were up eight. They were playing pretty well. And then when that lineup came in, Denver just got completely discombobulated. Their their matchups kept getting screwed up in transition. Um, and like, you know, you suddenly like Gordon was on Steph. There was one point Jokic was on pool. Remember when Jokic just crashed into Jordan Poole as he's shooting a three? There was just like a lot of that going on. Just that it was so disorganized. And clearly coming into game two, like pregame, that's all Malone was talking about. Like we have to be better communicating. So that seemed to be at the core of like what was going on. They were there was one possession where Denver made a shot. You might remember Steph walked up in transition and was like, nobody's picking me up. And he just pulled up from three. And Monte Morris or I, Barton, I remember, did one of those, like looking around, like they were starting to yell at each other. And then as he, he's going to the bench, Cousins says something to him. Don't know what DeMarcus Cousins said. I've had plenty of conversations. I used to cover DeMarcus Cousins. He can be a little bit mean at times, just like those short little comments. Clearly, it pissed Barton off. They go at it. Um, and like it just, it was the microcosm of the night. They kind of had a little mini scuffle on the bench. What was crazy about it, though, is only the little corner of the arena that was near the Denver bench saw it, but Draymond saw it and he ran out to center court during the timeout and was telling everyone like, get up, get up, like yell at them basically. And then in post game, he criticized the fans. He's like, they got to see that sooner. They got to get louder quicker. They got to be on them. Yeah. We'll see if uh, there's another one in that building again for this series. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate your work. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. This episode of the Ryan Rosilla Podcast is brought to you by McDonald's. McDonald's french fries changed my life. They taught me to want. They taught me the taste of anticipation. There's no wrong way to eat a French fry from McDonald's. Unless you're eating my French fries. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. I, uh, I love living here because there's always different options. A lot of people like to go to Lakers games and try to get courtside seats. I am a, more of a South Bay Lakers guy. And I, I got courtside to the Lakers and the 
Warriors affiliate, Santa Cruz, and I got to see the G League Rookie of the Year, Mac McClung, uh, up close and personal. And Mac joins us now. What's up, man? This is a lot of fun. I'm, I'm fired up to do this. What's up, guys? I appreciate you guys having me on. Me too. All right. So what was this year like for you? Um, it was definitely a mental grind. I think, you know, I have so much respect for people in the G League. And, um, you know, it's it's easy to, you know, look at other people's races and, and try to compare yours to them. But I think the biggest thing I learned was just to work on myself each day and try to be the best version of myself and, and not focus on someone else's race or um, someone else's journey. So um, it's challenging, you know. Uh, shout out to guys like Andre Ingram, who been in this league for 10, 11 years. So it's a grind, and, and I definitely respect the G League. Yeah, so you were with the Lakers, and then you're not with them, and then you get picked up by the Bulls, right? I'm just trying to get the timeline right. Uh, and you get into an actual Bulls game for two minutes. I love that you got a jumper up immediately. Were you telling yourself, like, hey, get a shot up here. Get on the board. Yeah, I think I was, like, being aggressive, just kind of play Like, I, I was playing well in the practices, so I was, like, I felt good. I felt confident. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just kind of just said, I'm going to let the game come to me. If it's open, it's open. And, you know, the fans, they were, like, they were they wanted a bucket bad, so I just tried to <laughs> try to give them what they wanted. Uh, if you go back and, and kind of, you know, you get picked back up by the Lakers. Before we go back in time here, you get picked back up by the Lakers. You, know, you play, I think, what, 26 games? with South Bay Lakers. Uh, and then you get called up to play in that last game, in Denver. Can you kind of take us through, like, what's your understanding? Because you're putting up numbers. You're hoping to get a call up. The Lakers season isn't going nearly the way they thought it was. What kind of communication are you having with your agent and your people and going like, hey, am I close? Am I going to get called up? Because I'm sure they wanted to keep you in South Bay to see what would happen with the playoffs. But there's, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Yeah, there was a lot going on. You know, there's multiple times... Uh, you know, my agent hit me and we thought we were a certain situation to get out. My, even my South Bay GM thought I was going to be gone uh, certain times and I was still there for weeks and weeks and weeks because of the way I was playing. But I, I kind of fell in love with, you know, South Bay and I was like, man, I just want to win a championship here. Like that's, we all really liked each other and that kind of became the focus. That's where my mind was at was just like, man, if we can win a championship this year, that would be great. And I love the guys I was with. So I didn't look at it as like, Oh, I'm ready to get out of here. I was like, man, can I keep growing here? Can I, can I, can we win for South Bay? And it was, that was kind of my mentality throughout the year. So you play in that Denver game, talk about being baptized into to the Lakers in the NBA life. Uh, what, give me the lead up. Cause at that point, the season's kind of over for them. And, you know, I know Austin went off as well, but what was the, what was the lead up to being like, okay, I'm back in this and, and I have a real game to go here and I'm going to play. Yeah. So when I, when I got there, well, the two days before when our season was over, my agent was like, yeah, like this is a big possibility. This, you might get to two way with the Lakers. And I was just like patient because, you know, I was like, I'm either going to go home or I'm either going to be with the Lakers. And uh, they told me I was, I, I was on the two way and I was going to go play. And then Frank like introduced me and, and was like, yeah, Max going to play tonight. And I was like, Oh, nice. Like, let's go. You know, I'm excited. And um, it, it was great. You know, i I, I definitely underestimated the Denver air though. <laughs> I, could, I was struggling to breathe, but no, it was, um, it was a great, it was a fun game. I don't know if you watched, but it was like a fun game to be part of, like came back within, I think it was nine points with 50 some seconds or something like that. It was just, you know, Austin Reeves was unbelievable. It was, it was a lot of fun. So, but people know this about you. You were, you were like the first Instagram dunker. Like you were almost before Zion in a way, like, 
I remember hearing about you being like, have you seen this kid, <laughs> this kid? And, you know, we, Van Pelt and I'd be watching the videos being like, holy shit, look at this guy. And so you, you've had like, your name's been out there for a while. Did any of the other guys, the established guys, LeBron, any of those dudes say anything to you when you get introduced and you're around this team? Uh, they, they definitely, I think you've seen the videos and stuff, but they were super nice to me. Um, but I, you know, I think they knew who I was, you know, first day I got there, it was a really nice gesture from uh, Anthony Davis. He let me work out with him. I was on the other side about to work out. He was like, you know, come work out with me, you know? So it just kind of shows kind of how those guys were and they were very open to me and just like, you know, I loved Rondo watching Rondo and, and learning from him, but yeah, all those guys are great guys and they were real open and you know, nobody was really shut off or anything like that. Yeah. That, but it was a weird season. And then on top of that, Frank gets fired that night. So what was that experience like for you? Because you're going, Hey, I got some points. We had this crazy game in Denver and it was a wild game. And now Frank, who just introduced me now, there's rumors that he doesn't know that he's fired. And look, I know you want a future with the Lakers here, so I don't expect you to be like going crazy or anything. But there's a lot of stuff that you're balancing the emotions of so many different things happening as the season closed for you and the team. Yeah, um, I didn't really know about the situation. And but I, I like Frank as a person. He was he was good to me. And, you know, um, you know, throughout the game, he's just giving me pointers and stuff. But, yeah, I don't really like know how any of that other stuff works. So I just kind of like focus on myself and, and trying to be a, trying to, trying to play well and, and stay the course. So, um, but that situation, I don't, I don't even really know how to comment on it. Yeah. Right. I mean, Mac, I didn't expect you to say, Hey, I think it was a huge mistake as you're, as you're sitting here in a two way trying to figure out like the rest, rest of your, uh, your NBA career. So let's yeah. go back to those high school days. What would, what was the first realization of like, Oh, this is real. And people are paying attention all the views the dunks, the recruiting. What was the first time where you felt like, okay, I might be the same, but now everything around me is different? Yeah. Um, I really didn't realize for a long time, I don't think. Like you just said, you were talking about, like, I really, I would see there be like, oh, there's 2 million views on this. And there should be like, I didn't understand. Like, people, like, it almost, at some points, I almost felt like everyone was watching when I got in college and stuff. Like, every like frat boy who was like, yo, let's make, you know what I mean? It was just like, I didn't really understand when I was in high school, the, like, I understand people around my hometown were watching and everything, but I didn't understand like how many people knew who I was. Um, until like I would go places and everybody like would just look at me and whisper and talk. And I'm just like, obviously I'm not like a celebrity, but it, it felt like, um, a lot sometimes, you know, uh, almost a lot of places I would go, I would get stopped and, you know, asked for pictures. And I was like, man, like, this is a lot different. I'm not the kid from Gate Sydney anymore. That just fits in everywhere I go. But um, I think if I could go to a certain story, I went in Vegas. It was as soon as I got out of high school, I went to Vegas for an AU showcase. And this like worker ran out of the store and he was like, you met McClung? I was like, I was like, how do you know my name? Like, it's like a family member or something. He's like, oh, I need a picture, man. I was like, oh, wow. Like that's, that's, it's a little different now. How old were you when you threw down your first dunk? I think it was the end of my freshman year. So I wasn't that athletic. Uh, I was like quick and, and fast, but like my balance wasn't there. I was just obsessed with it. And I finally started dunking around like the end of my freshman year. Not anything cool, but just like regular dunks. But how tall are you? Like for like six one six? I measured at 6'2", I think at the combine. Okay. All right. So... Well, how tall were you when you threw down your first dunk? Probably 5'10". Yeah, 5'10". Right. But then something happened, like the burst. 
you know, you like whatever that next level is where you were just just throwing down and there was some violence behind it, too. Like, I think dunking's weird. Not that I'm some sick dunker, but once you know you can do it, then there's this level of confidence of like, oh, wait, now I'm actually going to try to finish against guys with this that I can do it. And it's a completely it opens up so much more because now you're not trying to avoid being blocked and layups and stuff. Yeah, um, I became kind of obsessed with it. Like I was always obsessed. It was like uh, it was an obsession for me. And um, it was like my sophomore years when I started like, I don't know, I was in a warm up line in my in the AAU game. I just started like I, I was like, man, I'm getting high. Like I'm dunking this easy. Let me like try to windmill or something. Then I windmill and all my teammates were like, oh, my gosh. And then I was like, well, let me try to go between the legs. And I went between the legs. And I was just like trying stuff. And I was like, man, like I feel different. And it was kind of i think i was just maturing like i i don't think i've had any armpit hair in the freshman year you know what i'm saying so i, I think i just matured and i kind of i kind of grew into it and after that i was just my teammates probably hated me all i was doing was like leaking out for a fast break or trying to get a lob trying to get a duck but once you get that kind of attention and you said like hey i don't feel like a celebrity but like that's a celebrity in today's world you know like i got a couple teenage kids staying with me and you know it's their first time in la and they're like are we going to see anybody famous and then i was like i don't know like maybe we'll see some athletes or something and then they they were like well we wanted to see and i'm like i don't know who you're talking about like and i i'm glad i don't know who the hell uh they're talking about like but they were talking about like TikTok and all these different people that have these houses in LA and all these influencers and stuff. And I'm like, when you think of you and I think Zion as well, like this was like the first version of this basketball stuff and you were just throwing down dunks. But I have to imagine too, there was a real downside because now you had like a target on you. So how, how much did that suck playing and whether it was some of the showcase stuff or just the straight high school stuff where people were like, okay, well now we're going to mess with this dude. Yeah, I definitely think everyone like comes correct when they see me. And I like that. You know, I think um, I think there definitely is a target. The thing that I think bothered me for a while was like, man, like he's this like YouTube guy, like like that's just not who I am. Yeah, YouTube followed me, but my story is bigger in the effect of how many like odds I overcome and how hard I work. That's like that's going to be my story in the end, not like oh, he can dunk, you know, it's like, man, this guy's been counted out every step of the way. That's, that's what I want my story to be. And I think I had some frustration early on in my life when, when that was the kind of the story, you being a dunker, a funny YouTube guy. But, um, I think, you know, as I keep going, I don't think that'll be a, a stigma for too long. Was, is the story true about the opposing coach? Cause you committed to Georgetown. Uh, was it true that in high school, the opposing coach was telling you, you're going to be on the bench at Georgetown and then you went off? Yeah. I think, uh, I think I feel bad because the fans gave him so much trouble, like just blowing up his social media account. But, um, what happened? Yeah, I heard him, I heard him say that. And, you know, it was just, I think I looked at him and I was just like, you know, I said some things, but, um, yeah. Wait, so, put us, Mac, put us, put us in the story though. You're, what are you bringing the ball up? And then the opposing coach says, what? Like, give me, give me the full details of this. Um, so I was at the free throw line. And he said something, and I just laughed. And he said, yeah, something, you're going to Georgetown to sit or something like that. I think I said, I think before I shot three, I said, I'm going to start. And uh, not that I had a guaranteed starting job at the moment, but uh, I believed in myself. And that, that kind of stuff gets me going. I feel like that's a, that's a mistake to say to any player, you know, um, like that. But it kinda, I kind of got real hot after that, and I kept, um, kept looking his way for sure. So basketball, you know, you're younger, you know, there's certain ages where everybody realizes, oh, maybe I'm not going to play in the NBA. 
you know, like think of all your buddies, your junior high, and you're like, I'm going to play, you know, I'm going to do this. And then you get to Georgetown. And I mean, is it fair to say maybe it didn't go as well as you thought it would go? You know, that first that first year at Georgetown, we were like, oh, this might be a little bit harder. And then you transferred to Texas Tech. So what was that like for you, the realization of, I don't know. I don't know if you thought it was going to be easier, if it went harder. Um, take us through that part of your your journey of kind of figuring out where you fit in as a basketball player with still aspirations of hopefully playing in the NBA for like full time. Yeah, um, definitely you hit some bumps in the road. I think um, you have to to grow. I didn't realize like what my um, I don't think I played the game the way I was supposed to. You know, I was uh, probably a shooter first at six one, six two. And I realized, you know, I need to be a point guard when I left college and, you know, I got to, I got here in South Bay and, you know, I've, I've really changed my game, but, uh, you know, I think, I think the challenges were winning at Georgetown. Uh, I love, I love coach Ewing and the situation things happened off the court. That's why I left, not because of my love for coach Ewing or anything like that. Um, but Texas Tech was great. Chris Beard was great. Um, wish we went a little farther in the tournament, but. Um, I feel like that was a great situation for me. So you don't get drafted. What are you thinking? So my, um, you know, Drew Hanlon was the first person I was working out with him. Summer. He's like, you know, you're not getting drafted. Uh, and I was like, oh, man, like, you sure? Like, dang, like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm talking to some teams. They're saying maybe he's like, no, nah, like, you're not getting drafted. I was like, I was like, OK. And then Jeff Van Gundy, you know, he, uh, you know, he's staying in touch with me throughout my career. Uh, through Patrick Ewing, we knew each other, and he was someone that I, I I go to for advice a lot of times. And he said, "You know, you're not going to get drafted." He said, "You know, you know the route you're going to take is going to be a grind, so you might as well just go do it." That's what was one of the decisions to leave college. He said, "It's going to be a tough grind, and it's going to be that either way, next year or the next. Like you're going to have to work for it and get up there." And I was like, "Okay, well, let's do it." And so I knew kind of what angle I was going to have to take, and. I just kind of focused on myself. I knew there was going to be outside voices and everything, but I just said, let me stay the course. I know I'm destined to do this. So um, I just kind of stayed the course and hopefully I can keep, keep uh, going up. What else? Have you, I love Van Gundy. So what's that relationship been like? Uh, he's just been a really, he's a really good person um, who is a great basketball mind. So if I ever, you know, he'll check on me from here to there. But if I ever have any questions about like big decisions, I like to text him or call him and, and see what's going on. So um, he's just a, a great resource for me and uh, I'm lucky to have him. So we know it's a grind. I, I loved going to the G League game just because I think it was another reminder of just how absurd, like the quickness, you know, like people can watch the NBA and realize like how big these guys are and how quick they are. And you're like, yeah, okay, the G League, like you play with centers and like all four guys think they're the leading scorer, you know? So there's a lot of like, all right, I got to get mine here because I got to get out of here. And then you're watching dudes. You're like, I still can't believe how quick everybody is, how quick your decisions have to be. Um, and and you put up numbers. Uh, what, what was your favorite part of like developing the part of your game where it felt like at least the way the game that I saw again, it wasn't like I was watching all of them, Like you're going to have to figure out a way to survive. Like as a pick and roll guy, right? Like as, as just high pick and roll, high ball screen, still be a playmaker, but still have the drive shoot option. And it seems pretty straightforward with it, but it's also harder. I think for you guys, because now there's a lot of guys that want to take turns doing that. And you sub out like almost hockey lines, 
as well. Like you'll you'll sub out a ton of different guys, so it's not like you get to own the game and have a flow the way you would maybe in a traditional game. But I'm I'm curious just from a basketball part of it, like how you feel like you're still being aggressive, but also trying to find a way to develop the skills that make you an NBA player. Yeah, my whole approach this year was kind of like I was not pressed to like get shots. Like it was the most I've ever been in life. Like like being a pass first guy, and then like. I was like, dang, well, it comes out. It always comes back to me, you know, like when I'm unselfish, it always comes back. I get more shots being unselfish and having that mindset and worrying about if this guy has enough shots instead of myself. And and then in the late game, you know, the ball would always come to me because they knew I was going to try to try to make the right play. And um, that's kind of the approach I took. And um, I felt like it worked out a lot better because, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of teams that everybody's trying to get there as you can tell you know what I mean but I think our team that's why I was so lucky to go in that situation great people great dudes everybody wanted everybody to to succeed yeah Miles is a really good coach like super into it and I always I always hear really good stuff about Miles Simon all right last thing I want to finish up here I always think the 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 underdog white guy is always a fascinating basketball story you know because um you you go to Chicago and it's like, hey, it's that guy that dunked on the videos, like huge ovation, which yeah. then which then usually will piss off other dudes. We're like, oh, what is this like the mascot? And right. and then I'll notice that the G League game, there were some dudes on the other team that were like, there's no matter what happens, I'm lot I'm not letting Mac McClung get the best of me. What what has that been like? Where it's this this adoration from the fans because of of the backstory. But then also being in the crosshairs of so many other dudes that are like, there's no way I'm letting this guy. And I, you know, I see guys kind of step to you a little bit and and maybe give you a little bit more shit because of who you are uh, in these settings. And that's that's going to be kind of a weird thing that you probably experienced your entire playing career. Yeah, it's hilarious. So I go over a lot of film work, uh, and we would <laughs> we would watch like we'd watch games and we see how they guard another guard who's like a. He's like a first team caliber guy or like a maybe even like a you know player of the year candidate. And then we'd see how he guards me. Like it's just like hilarious, like the attention to detail. Like I didn't think it was a thing when people would say that. Like my dad would say that stuff because he was obsessed with all the G League games and watch them. And we would watch them and me and my coach would just like laugh, you know, like how like focused guys would be when they guarded me because of that reason. But I don't see it. Like I don't even think of it like that. I'm just like when the ball's up, like you know, I always tell myself, pray for the bear, like it's on, like um, I'm just ready to go and, and and I'm focused on winning. So I don't even really think of anything or, you know, think it's just got guarded me hard. Like it's, it's on uh, from both ways for sure. Well, it was fun to get to see that experience. And I, I think everybody that knows um, how hard it is to get there, like, what are you going to do this off season? Like, I mean, do you have any idea of kind of where you stand? I mean, obviously, it's a lot of work in front of you here, too. So there's no guarantees. But do you have any sense or do you even allow yourself to have expectations for what next year might be? You know, you know, you hear things and you want to I think the worst thing you can you can make assumptions and I don't want to make any assumptions. I'm just going to stay the course um, and figure out whatever happens. I feel like is, is supposed to happen. So I'm just going to work hard and and focus on growing each day and, and it all work out. I'm sure. Well, good luck to you. It was fun. And thanks for doing this, Mac. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This episode is brought to you by Viore. It's time to ditch your old workout fit. Seriously, just let them go and try Viore clothing instead. Their active wear is unbelievable. Sometimes I wear it and I go, do I look too good? 
I don't want to be at this peak level of awesomeness in their joggers every single day. This is going to be hard to maintain, but that's what the joggers do for you. Whether you're sort of business cash, whether you're just around the house, whether you're working out, whether you're getting on a plane and you're going to be in your seat for a long time, the joggers just give you a hug for the entire flight. It's soft. It's comfortable. You're never going to want to take them off. Incredible versatility. You can wear it while taking part in different kinds of exercises, running, training, swimming, yoga, and more. Viore yoga class. That just makes sense. The Sunday jogger is the number one go-to. And of course, the core short out and out. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Ryan, R-Y-E-N. That's V-U-O-R-I.com slash Ryan. This episode is brought to you by Buy. It's Wonder Water. So I was wondering what made Buy so great. And it's actually pretty simple. Buy has antioxidants, electrolytes, and no artificial sweeteners. And the flavors are delicious. For me, it has to be Buy Zambia Bing Cherry. So for flavorful hydration, choose Buy. It's Wonder Water. Learn more about Buy and discover all of the exotic, bold flavors at drinkbuy.com. You want details? Buy. I drive a Ferrari. 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice. The email is lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. Okay. Uh, hey, Ryan, reaching out because I value your opinion. Um, my significant other also values your words as well. Okay. So, nice. you got a female. We go female chairman in here because usually you don't hear dudes going. My wife loves everything you have to say. <laughs> so here's her deal. I'm currently dealing with a very common situation, an overbearing, jealous and intrusive mother-in-law. Uh, there's been a lot of history here that I won't entirely unpack, but there is one situation I'm currently dealing with that I'd like your advice on. Uh Oh, so this is I wonder if we're being it used as a vehicle here as the call out so that the significant other knows what's going on with the intrusive mom. I don't know. Whatever. That's on you. You sent the email in my basically mother-in-law mother to the guy I've been dating for three years, sees me as a comp- uh, sees me as competition. And that simple fact has created a huge wedge in her and I's relationship. She lives in the same city as me and my significant other works for my um, significant other as his assistant. He owns a construction property management business and they text mostly every day. Uh, she typically keeps her distance from me because of how she feels about me. This week is her birthday. She's requested to my significant other that he and his best friend take her fishing only the two of them are invited and no one else. And it would be in my boat that I purchased last year. She knows I would enjoy going, and yet she purposely manipulates my exclusion. Time out here. You got a boat? Yeah, cat, my boat. That implies that, you know, yeah. obviously you're a roller, and is it not your significant other's boat? Like, it's, it's, it's just your boat. Damn. Hard line. Yeah. Yeah, and then she, to, but he has privileges to use it, and has, and for his her future mother in law to use it. This is a weird situation. Yeah, hey, can we use your future wife's boat, and she can't <laughs> you're, come? You're because, not invited. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would say if it doesn't work out, I think you're going to have a lot of options. Be like, uh, oh yeah, cool, I'm free Saturday. Actually, you know, we we're just thinking the two of us. Sorry, you know. Do just, they refuel uh, it? I mean, that's the, the <laughs> ultimate. Like, oh, and, and they and they didn't put gas in it. Man, that's, that's harsh. Anyway, okay. Okay. So I'm she, already mad the, about it. Yeah, but I feel like she has a great chance to, if it doesn't work out, you know. Yeah, she's got a boat. Better, She'll be fine. What, 
better dating profile than like loves to stay active, loves dogs, owns a boat. Okay, so the significant other sees nothing wrong with this, says I'm making the situation about myself and I'm being selfish, so I need to get over myself. Well, well sounds like, like, all right, why don't you go rent a fucking rowboat then, buddy? All right, uh, that in itself is toxic, hurtful behavior on his part, but nonetheless, I want your opinion on if I'm misconstruing the situation turning it into something that it isn't. Uh, would you allow your mother to exclude your wife from plans involving you? Would you stand up for your wife or would you simply grant your mother her birthday wish and take her out without your wife there? Uh, love your feedback. <laughs> well, I'm not the perfect guy there for the end, my hypothetical wife, mother-in-law situation, but it, it's always kind of a weird dynamic if you break it down like that. I always think one of the weirdest realizations that you have as you get older as a kid is that like, you look at your mother and father as almost brother and sister and like it's family. It's like, no, like at one point, one of them was like super into the other. Mm. There's a chance that your dad, you know, was was annoying and then your mother was finally like, okay, fine. Or the other way around where your mom wouldn't leave your dad. And then, you, then when you start thinking about your parents as as a version of a relationship that obviously was much more serious than maybe what you're dealing with as a younger person. But then as you get older, you start looking at your parents as people that were dating and romantically involved instead of just the immediacy of kind of all that being. Um, it's almost like that. Does Sometimes it doesn't feel that way when it's when you're younger and you're growing up. So. Trying to apply some of that to the mother-in-law part of this. Is he an only child? If that's the case, um, yeah. I mean, I think that can get weird sometimes uh, with the protection part of it. You mentioned something in the past, but you didn't want to go there that you didn't want to unpack, which is totally fine. Um, but I'm just wondering if there's something that they went through uh, as a family that has bonded them maybe beyond. And then on top of that, that she's working for his business um, they're going to be texting every day, even if it wasn't his mom, if she's helping him run his business on top of everything else. Uh, there are people that have like want to be with their parents all the time. Uh, there are people that are really good about being around their parents and there are people that never want to deal with their parents. All right. Um, so I think anybody that's you know, depending on which which category you fall in, sometimes you'll have a harder time understanding the closeness or lack of of, of closeness. Um, of your significant other and their parents. So really what this comes down to is, as you described, and we're only getting your side of this thing, is that it's not even so much about the mother-in-law as it is, how is your future husband going to balance this? Because him saying, hey, it, you're making it about you when you feel like the mother-in-law has gone out of her way to exclude you and finds you as his competition, if he's not seeing that, that's going to be a bigger problem than the boat and the birthday and the texting and the, and the daily stuff here. So it is a bit like, hey, whose side are you going to take? The thing that I always think is like in a healthy marriage, like even if it's your mother, this is somebody you're starting a family with. This is somebody who you're signing up to be with every day for the rest of your life if it works out. So the significant other should almost always win. And like to me, that's the ultimate commitment. So yes, this person could have given birth to you, but you're not living with your mother the rest of your life. You're not starting a family with your mother and planning out, you know, decades in advance. You know, if you're on the same page uh, with the other person and you can plan, you can say, hey, eventually I'd like to do this. I'd like to have this many kids. I'd like to live here. This is what I'd love to pursue. But if my career doesn't work out, this is something else that I can do. I want to be supportive of you. Like these are all the real things, the cool shit in good relationships where you grow together and you share this journey together. 
And there isn't really room. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, like, it's it's cool when people remain friends later on. But like when I hit up guys like, hey, you going to do something? It's like, dude, it's just not really the way it works for Solo. Like, I can't just go to Vegas with you for a UFC fight. I'm like, why? Like, why wouldn't she want you to have? He's like, yeah, but it doesn't fucking work that way. And it's like, look, I also understand that it doesn't work this way, but I'll still throw the invites out there every now and then. So if he's not more committed to you than he is his mother moving forward, I do think that that's a real problem. And I don't even bother addressing it with the mother-in-law. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know, like you're. You may, it'd be great if the mother-in-law was like, this is amazing. My son, who I love, this is the, this is his person. He picked this person. He found her. This is great. Uh, it apparently isn't going to go like that, but I, I don't think there's any resolution to this until you get your future husband more on the same page with how you feel about this, uh, than trying to battle with the mother-in-law that was totally okay with taking your fucking boat out and making sure that you weren't on it. This is like uh, I feel like there are so many romantic comedies, rom coms that have been this exact premise where like this, the the guy is just way too into his mom, and there's like way too much of a connection there, and it's always a red flag. Like it just never to me that's never cool. Like I, you know, I have a, a great relationship with my mom, but I I would feel really awkward if I told my wife, hey, actually, like you can't come on your boat to you know, to do this thing. Like, and here's the thing: is like my mom would want Maddie, my wife, to to come with us too. So there's. It's a it's a tough situation. I think you're right. The least of his the least of her concerns should be the mother in law because there's a good chance you're never going to really win her over anyway if this is the way it is now. But it's all about like the dude and figuring out what is the line where you're going to be able to be like, who's the priority here? Am I the priority or is your mom the priority? I know your mom the mom does a lot of things for you, but like I am, you know, I'm if I'm this important person in your life, like I kind of have to be number one and. I don't know if there's any reasoning with that. Like some guys are just kind of like mama's boys like that. And they like, and they kind of like that. They like the security. That's never been my thing, but I think that's kind of a big red flag. I don't know if you do. Yeah. Then I'm the ultimate green flag, but I, there's maybe if the boat were an isolated incident, then I mean, that's, that's kind of what we're always asking here. Is this normal or is this a one-off? If the one-off was like, Hey, I just want to fish with my son. Maybe it's something we did when we were younger. And Hey, the boat part of it is, is fucked. Because it's like, oh, and by the way, we're using your fucking boat, which yeah. is, you know, the boat owner's deal. It's like, wait, you, you're only like, I'm, I'm only worth this to you because I've got a 51 foot sloop out back, you know? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's one thing if you like go out to dinner or a concert or whatever, yeah. something that isn't physically someone else's. <laughs> and they're yeah. you're it's, it's like, and I don't think either of us are saying something absurd. Like, of course, there are going to be times where if you're very close with your mom and who have like, hey, I'm just hanging out with my mom. Or I'm just hanging out with my dad. Yeah, like, okay, this is fine. But it clearly is a pattern. It doesn't seem like the mother-in-law is into this person at all. I don't know if there's anything that validates her feeling about any of this. Is this the same? Like another thing you could ask the significant other and be like, if you've been with anybody else that was serious, you know, I don't know. Some people don't love talking about that either. Was this also the case? Yeah. Because then sometimes it would be there. Yeah. Look, I don't know how honest it would be, you know, because what if he's like, yeah, actually, she loved Jessica. <laughs> oh, then, yeah. Then, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. Then, then you're getting an answer. You're like, oh, whatever. You're like her boat was awesome. All but right. just think about it in another context. Like, imagine if she had like a, a lake house or something and you're like, yeah, my mom and I are going to the lake house for the weekend. Like, you're not invited. Like, it's just insane. It's an, it's an insane move to me. And did she mention it all? Like the dad in the situation? Is he around? No. So mention it. you met you, you kind of mentioned like, was there some sort of thing that they went through? Maybe, you know, maybe there was some drama earlier and they're really close because of that. And you kind of have to respect that. I don't know. We don't know the full details of the situation, but 
at some point, like, you know, you have to, you got to tell this dude, he's got to become his own man. Like, you know, if you want to marry me or be with me or whatever, use my boat consistently. Like this isn't going to fly. Yeah. Right. Uh, okay. Next one is this stealing. Hope you guys provide some insight in my situation. About six foot. All right. 190. Top power lifter in my high school. Nice. He attached a bunch of stuff. Nowadays, I just work out enough to maintain a two plate bench. Uh, keep the love handles looking more like love knobs. All right. Uh, I've gotten a routine that probably should be considered sus. When purchasing tickets to NBA games, I peruse local ticket groups on Facebook until I find desperate game day sellers who will sell their tickets for dirt cheap. I scoop up these cheapies with the intention of just needing to get in the door. Once I arrive at the arena, I hop on the home team's official ticket selling page and look for seats that haven't sold that are way better than the ones I bought. Obviously, knowing if they are still showing for sale, there won't be anyone sitting there. I decide on where I want to sit. Given the options, I make my way to the entrance of that section. They're usually... uh, Usher's present, but when mass amounts of people are flooding in just before tip-off, they can't check everyone's ticket, so it's easy to sneak on by, even if they if they even care in the first place. Uh, once in that seat, it's game on. Let's be real. The game is seen completely different 10 rows from the court versus up in the corner nosebleeds. The problem, my girlfriend considers this stealing, whereas I just consider it a loophole or balling on a budget. Here comes the part where I try to justify these tactics. I pad the team's bottom line by paying premium for other things, apparel, concessions, parking, my attention, taxes for their arena. <laughs> also, dude, you've done some massive, <laughs> massive justification for this. Also, part of this behavior stems from being burned by buying full price tickets in the past, only to show up to find out that so-and-so player isn't playing for any number of bullshit reasons. All right. Thanks, Bring it Silver. Shifting the power back to the people. <laughs> <laughs> Between that and the audacity, the audacity of management to raise prices consistently, regardless of the product put on the court of the field, it doesn't feel wrong to do what I do. Time for the fans to take back some power. Okay, maybe not, but I'm sure you can at least understand where I'm coming from. I would appreciate your viewpoints. Rip me to shreds if you want. I'm still going to listen to the pod. P.S. I attached some of the views I've had. None of these cost more than $25 a ticket with my method. Well, you just exposed your method here a little bit. Uh, I have... I'm going to tell you right now, I have no problem with this no. whatsoever. Okay. Zero. Your, your girlfriend dumper. No, but just her saying unless this she is has stealing. A yeah. Unless she's got a boat that you can use with your mom <laughs> without her. <laughs> uh, I don't think this is stealing at all. I think it'd almost be elitist to have a problem with this. You have, you have a system. I, I think the only thing is, as somebody that's done, been on both sides of this. Okay. Uh, I used to move up all the time at Fenway when I didn't have any money because back then before Fenway was, was pink hats and world championships and stupid songs inside the park all the time. I guess they're doing the blur thing now if it's strikeouts. I don't know when, I don't know exactly when that starts. Cause I don't think I've been to Fenway in a little while. Wait, but, blur song two. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm getting reports from opening day from my buddies that were there and I'm, that's I'm not super original. I'm not, I'm not loving it. If that's true, I gotta, I gotta do some more research. We're going to get it on that, but uh, I, I'm not going to be a hypocrite here and, and say, oh, you shouldn't do that. Cause there, and I also, also, I don't have a reason to say this is what, this is like some philosophical thing. I'm sure there's some people listening being like, Hey, you buy your ticket, whatever. No. Uh, there, there are weird times where you just, I mean, I, I guess I'm sliding another bartender analogy in here, but like there used to be always this dilemma with depending on who you work with, where you worked at. 
And yeah, I'm going to hook up my buddies here. I'm going to do a couple, you know, like I wouldn't be like, hey, here's free rounds left and right, but I'll figure out a way to take care of you guys in a couple of rounds or whatever. And then there would be this philosophical thing. Or there's this woman bartender that I work with and she'd be like, it's not your booze to give away. You don't own the booze. It's not your right. I'm like, yeah, that's technically true, but it's also not really what we do here. Like this is, it's, I can't tell you that you're wrong, but that's not really how anybody looks at this. And we're not at a Chili's, okay? So, although I don't know what Chili's does. I'm sure there's a couple of people throwing some sidecars down, you know, on the I've, low. A couple Tullamore dues for the crew in the, the corner. Crystal Chili's, that place you get yeah. here sometimes. Yeah, right. Here's some chips. Nobody's looking. So, I... Uh, Dump a couple Coronas and a margarita, <laughs> call it a night. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The Coronas may have inventory on. But I don't... I think what you've done is you figured out something here that's a next level is that you wait until the last minute. And by the way, the people that are selling their tickets last minute, they already know what agreement they're into. They're yeah. on some ticket group going, I'm hoping to get anything to cover anything. And you're probably buying from somebody who's bulked up and bought so many tickets in the first place that they've changed the market. Although the secondary ticket market will argue, at least we provide you a service to be able to get into anything that you ever want to go to. Um, which is also a weird dynamic of teams being like, wait, we're supposed to let secondary ticket markets just go ahead and sell our product for a greater profit than we're allowed to because of reasons. And then that's why all of these leagues and, and specific teams partnered with all these secondary ticket merchants anyway. So I don't know that anybody's feeling bad for that part of, of the transaction. And then once you're in there and you figured out to look at which tickets are still available and they're going to be open, I don't have any problem with this. But she just may be back to the free drink analogy, she may be just so philosophically opposed to this, she's just not going to see it. We are all on your side. I'd imagine you'd have 90% of the people on your side here. I think the only time that you argue against this is if you're the person that always has those nice seats and for whatever reason, because you're in the club out back, you know, the, the ha you never notice like in the really good arenas, actually most arenas now at this point, halftime, second half starts and all the best seats are still empty because they're hanging out in these really cool spots in the arena, having drinks and they're late to get back to there. They're not grinding. They're not taking notes. They're not charting plays, obviously, um, but they're having drinks and they're just wandering back in when it's convenient for them. I think when those seats are taken and it's clear that it's like, yeah, I just haven't been back to my seat. And then you show up, the dude gives you a hard time because you weren't your seat at, at the right time. That's when you're like, hey, fuck off. Like, you didn't buy the seat. You don't get to just take it because I left and then I was late getting back to it. But that's not even close to what you're doing no. here. Saruti. Is this not the definition of a victimless crime? Like, no one's hurt here. Those tickets weren't going to be sold. So it's not like you're you're scheming you're, or you're scamming like the team. And honestly, like the team, if you're sitting in like the lower bowl, they should probably want that more filled if it's on TV to make it look like it's not empty. Like I, I don't think anyone is actually wronged here. So, uh, yeah, that's like the Yankee Stadium thing with those ridiculous Delta seats, and they're empty all the time because they're yeah. so expensive. And then you go, you and I don't know if they change. I don't know if they change that or not. I, I don't remember from watching the most exciting team in baseball, the Toronto Blue Jays, play at Yankee Stadium to start the season. But go ahead. I mean, I used to when I this was probably 10 years ago now, but I, when I was in D.C. and they had just opened Nationals Park, I would buy they'd, they'd sell a five dollar ticket. It was nosebleeds. Um, and I and no one would go because they were terrible at that time. And I sat in every different part of that entire ballpark. And honestly, it was like pretty awesome. And again, that's what I, I in my own head, I'm like, I'm not stealing from anyone. I'm not taking anyone's seat. I'm not like taking money. I'm still giving money to the team in some way, shape or form. You know, it's five bucks. And like, do they not want me to go? Like, I could just not go and spend the five bucks and 
and and never be at a stadium or never be at a, at a at a Nats game. So again, this is the definition of a victimless crime. You should not be you should not be weird about this. And I think honestly, you have to have a conversation. Your girlfriend seems like too much of a goody two shoes. Like what? Who? Why is she is she pro owner? I don't understand like what her stance is in this situation. <laughs> like I, I really I don't I don't understand like why is she like no you need to pay the two hundred dollars to sit in that actual seat because you know the NBA the profits but these guys are already making millions of dollars anyway man you do you and honestly I think you find a pretty cool scheme like that's I hadn't thought about that to look at the look at the uh, what's the still available bowl, what's right. available because then you know and it's all about what the bounce or what the um, you know the attendants do and if they check you or not if you have a, if you have a system in place that allows you to do it then that's kind of that's on you man that's smart. I respect it. I'll take it one step further. When I was living in Boston and I would go to Fenway all the time just because I was like, I'm just going to go to Fenway. I mean, it was a lifelong dream. I'm working in Boston. I'm on the air. I'm like, I can't believe I get to talk about my favorite team ever. And now I can go to Fenway whenever I want. And it was a little less strict then, but it was starting to get to the point where you just couldn't even find a seat in the place. And I would go up to this one section. The usher was just, I mean, legendary older guy. And I'd give him five bucks. And he would be telling me, like, he would give me, like, hey, that guy's not going to be here tonight. And I would sit in the seat. I did it for, like, 40 games. Every time I just give him, like, honestly, like, I didn't have any money. I was in. I hated sitting in the press box. I hated it. The press box at Fenway was terrible. And, you know, if you were a guy like me, the lowest of lows, and I'm not really, you know, I'm not, like, covering the game. Um, Whatever, you know, I... I didn't want to sit in the press box anyway. All right. Thanks to Kyle and Steve producing this podcast. Ring your Spotify. Please subscribe. I'll be back on Thursday with Bill on Sundays. Bye.